The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Bell. We're a bit lucky today on the podcast. Today's guest has been mentioned at least three times in dispatches on this show uh, for her leadership on some of the biggest topics facing business and society today. Cindy Gallup has become a byword for changing the ratio in advertising, business and culture and getting diverse perspectives and experiences in terms of gender, ethnicity, background and moving past that stale male and pale in the boardroom. As the leader of BBH New York, Gallup helped build one of the world's great agencies and since leaving has been a pioneer in sex tech and the global conversation about the effect that pornography has been having on the young. You might have seen her amazing TED talk on the subject, you would definitely have seen her quotes on Twitter and Cindy is really kind of in that category of people that the people you look up to look up to. So it's a great privilege to have her on the show today. Thank you for coming on. I'm thrilled to be here. Hey, so first up on the show, we kind of go back and uh, look at the careers of our guests and, and see that there isn't necessarily that one pathway to business. And you have a fascinating background uh, through, through Oxford and theatre by way of getting to advertising. Is that right? Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, tell, tell us about that. How, how did you get into advertising through that route? Sure. So um, I guess, um, you know, I should say, Simon, that everything in my life and career has happened by complete accident. Um, I've never consciously, intentionally set out to do anything that I I found myself doing. So I read English literature at um, Oxford University. But um, what really happened for me there was that I fell madly in love with theatre. Oxford has a very thriving student drama scene. And... I just threw myself into that. I was president of my college drama society, Somerville College, and I did everything in theatre. I wrote, acted, directed, stage managed, and basically decided that all I wanted to do was work in theatre for the rest of my life. But I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress or director, but I used to draw a lot when I was younger, and so um, I got pulled into designing theatre posters for my friends' shows in Oxford, And from there, they kind of pulled me into publicizing their shows. And I really enjoyed that. 
So I became a marketing and publicity officer in several theatres around the UK. And I did that for several years until I got completely fed up with working every hour God gave me and earning chicken feed, which is what happens in theatre. And so at the time that I was beginning to think that maybe, you know, this was not what I want to spend the rest of my life doing, I was the marketing officer at the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool. And part of my job promoting the theatre was to give talks about it. So I gave a talk to a group of women in Liverpool. And after the talk, one of them came up to me and she said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. (laughs) And I thought, okay, that is the universe telling me something. I think it's time to sell out the establishment and go into advertising. So I did. And that was how that happened. And the places that you, you worked, so you worked with BBH, uh, one of the great agencies in the world, and were instrumental, instrumental in setting up and building the New York office. T- tell, me about, um, tell me about that, taking that, that agency and building that. Well, um, in, um, in the early years, um, uh, employee number two after me at BBH New York was Ty Montague, who was my executive creative director. And whenever people used to ask us how it was going, Ty had a great answer. He'd say, we're having hard fun. And that's exactly what it was like building BBH New York, hard fun. Um, the agency literally began as me in a room with a phone. Um, basically starting up an agency in the world's toughest advertising marketplace. And um, I always remember um, um, we, uh, we started there in September 1998. And in November 1998, um, the Advertising Council, the um, uh, nonprofit that basically brokers public service campaigns in the US um, between um, causes and clients and the agencies that do the pro bono work, Every, every November, um, the Ad Council has a big gala dinner at which they give their public service award to um, some very prominent person in the um, client brand community. And every agency goes to this event. So anyway, um, you know, TCBBH New York, I think, I think there were maybe three of us at that stage. Um, we got a call the afternoon of the Ad Council gala from um, Leo Burnett, who had a... Um, uh, staken in BBH at the time. And obviously what had happened was that the Nets had taken a whole bunch of tables and they needed people to fill them. So they were ringing around the poor cousins, you know, the, um, all of the little agencies and places that had a stake in, asking them if they wanted to come to the gala that evening. And as far as I was concerned, it was whoopee, free food, free drink. I went, sure, I'll do that. So I trotted along to the Waldorf Astoria um, in New York, um, into the Grand Ballroom. And, uh, and the Ad Council Garden is a, is a massive, glittering event. I remember sitting there on the Leo Burnett table, looking around me at, you know, table after table filled with J. Walter Thompson, Young and Rubicum, Gray, McCann, you know, BBDO, all of the, you know, huge agencies in the U.S. And I remember thinking, you know, Oh my God, you know, if I stop to think about what I've come here to do, which is to start up an agency and grow it and make it successful in this landscape, if I stop to think about that, I'm just going to want to crawl into bed, pull the covers over my head and never come out again. So I must, I'm, I'm just mustn't think about it. <laughs> and um, and that, that was really how it felt. It was very, very daunting indeed, but, um, but we made it work. And in that environment, I mean, even today, uh, the diversity in those 
bases and the leadership teams is pretty poor. But I imagine those years ago, walking into that room, it would have been a very white, older male experience. Yep. And what was it like coming as a an upstart from uh, from England into the the New York market, and as a as a female leader into that environment? Well, you know, the interesting thing, um, Simon, is that um, so, so when I was working at BBH in London, I was running various pieces of global business, um, and the majority of which were headquartered in the US. So I oversaw our Coca-Cola business, and I had to travel to Atlanta. I ran our Polaroid account, and that meant trips to Boston. And I also ran the Ray-Ban account when we had it, which meant trips to Rochester. And, and, and dealing with a number of American clients. And I realized, even back in, you know, this would have been the early 90s, that America was 10 years ahead of the UK in terms of the status of women. Um, even though, again, that's not saying a huge amount, but um, that was one of the reasons I had always wanted to go and work in the US. And, um, and, and so I was aware that, you know, um, uh, I would be in a better position to fulfill my ambitions in a country that had a somewhat more enlightened um, view of female leaders. But there was also um, at play, especially, by the way, when I was coming up through the ranks in advertising, um, that thing of a fish doesn't know what water is. So, you know, of course, um, as you point out, very little has changed in our industry over the years from the Mad Men era in terms of sexism and bias. But, you know, um, early on in my career, I was just working so hard and, you know, I just thought this is the way things are. And, you know, it, it was as I um, grew more and more senior and took more of a bird's eye view of the industry that I realized increasingly how very backward the industry was in this respect. Um, and it was particularly when I left the corporate world in 2005 and began working for myself that I was then able to be particularly clear-sighted and also, very importantly, to be able to have, um, as a free agent, um, a voice um, and the ability to speak up and do something about this. And you know, let's look at that speaking up and talking about things, because at the moment you're over the side of the world uh, in Australia for the 3% conference. Tell us, tell us, you know, what the background of that conference is, and it's not far above the 3% in the name now, is it? Sure. So, um, so I'm actually thrilled to be here in Sydney, um, speaking at the 3% conference Australasia this Thursday. Um, and by the way, anybody listening to this should totally jump on a plane and get a ticket now. Be quick. Um, and, and the 3% conference was started um, six years ago now by an amazing woman called Kat Gordon, who is a creative director in the US, who observed absolutely what the industry has been talking about for years, the appalling paucity of women as creative leaders and in the creative department, and decided something about it. So she started the 3% conference, um, which was named as such because at the time, 97% of all advertising agency creative directors were men, only 3% women. And it began as, um, I, I, I've keynoted at every single 3% conference since the first one. The first one was a couple of hundred people, women and right-minded men in a small hall in San Francisco. And it's grown and grown over the years. Um, the last one in New York was something like um, 1,600 people. 
it'll be even larger than this for New York. And importantly, um, in the U.S., it has moved the needle um, because, because critical of the cat is actually measuring the quantifiable impact the 3% conference has had. And it has now moved the needle to 11% of creative directors in the U.S. are now women. Um, and obviously, we're looking to take that number considerably higher. Still a little bit of headroom where uh, obviously you've got a pretty even gender split, but amongst the people that advertising seeks to uh, influence, the purchasing power of women is so high in so many of these categories. So it seems uh, it seems amazing that 11% could be, um, could, could be a better figure than where we were with that in mind. Well, it is extraordinary as an industry whose consumers are primarily women um, is not um, made up of primarily women, especially in the creative department, um, where it's critically important to be able to create really compelling and very, very effective communication for our clients. So, yes, it is extraordinary. Let's look at some of the kind of quotes, uh, because it's that public position that's helped to um, propel some of the things that you've been talking about uh, for a long time into now the public consciousness. Um, a couple of the quotes I love, one is, you'll never own the future if you care what people think, what other people think. T- tell me a little bit about the thinking behind that. Sure. So um, the reason I um, talk about that is... Um, due to a number of um, observations drawn from my own personal experience. And I will, um, for your listenership, um, characterize that um, in a way that can be related to within our industry. So um, our industry badly needs reinvention. And one of the reasons that it's, it's not getting it in the way that it should is that when when people start new um, um, advertising agencies or you know, um, uh, ventures that they intend to be the future advertising, those, those startups are very often the result of a team of founders who have had very long, very celebrated, um, much awarded careers in our industry. And the difficult thing, and, and I say this because I've observed this myself in a number of people that, that, that I know, um, the difficult thing about that um, is that when you start your new venture, it matters to you enormously what the industry and the industry press thinks of it. And quite frankly, you are never going to start the real future of advertising when you care very much about what campaign magazine or advertising age is going to say about your new venture. Um, the, um, the, the true source of creativity and of innovation and disruption is not giving a damn what anybody else thinks. And, you know, this has been particularly brought home to me in recent years um, when I've been trying to raise funding for my sex tech startup, Make Love Not Porn. My biggest obstacle um, raising um, the relatively small amount of funding I'm trying to raise, make love not porn, is the social dynamic that I call fear of what other people will think. Because in the case of make love not porn, it's never about what the person I'm talking to thinks. Um, Because when you understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, nobody can argue with it. The business case is clear. It is always their fear of what they think other people will think 
which operates around sex more than any other area. And so um, that's why I make the point that you know, the fear of what other people will think is the single most paralyzing dynamic in business and in life. You will never own the future if you care what other people think. Let's look at that sex tech startup and its journey because that's a fascinating thing where it's a business force but also a cultural force that you're bringing together. And many people would have seen that uh, amazing TED talk that you did about the role of pornography uh, in the shaping of the way that people were treating sex and your experience. And that great talk went on to form First, the website Make Love Not Porn that was an awareness piece, wasn't it? And then into uh, the business about um, sharing real-world sex. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Sure. Um, So that journey was a complete accident, Um, again. um, I never set out to do any of everything I now bizarrely find myself doing. Um, So Make Love Not Porn came about through direct personal experience. I date younger men, and about 10 or 11 years ago now, I began realizing through dating younger men that I was encountering what happens when today's total freedom of access to hardcore porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. The convergence of both of those factors results in porn becoming by default sex education in not a good way. So I decided something about this. Um, back in 2009, I launched, um, with a talk at TED, a very clunky little no-money website um, at makelovenotporn.com that posted the myths of hardcore porn and balanced them with reality. The construct was porn world versus real world. I became the only TED speaker to have said the words, come on my face, on the TED stage six times. The talk went viral as a result, and it drove an extraordinary global response to my tiny, clunky website that I had never anticipated. I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue, and I felt a personal responsibility to take this initiative forward in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful, and effective. So I, I saw an opportunity also to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw the opportunity for a big business solution to this massive untapped global social need. So, um, so what, I, what I decided to do was, I really have to emphasize that make love not porn is not anti-porn because the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. If we did, amongst many other benefits, people would be able to bring a real-world mindset to the viewing of what is simply artificial entertainment. Our tagline at Make Love Not Porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And our mission is one thing only, which is to help make it easier for the world to talk about sex. Talk about sex openly honestly in the public domain, and by that I mean parents to children, teachers to schools, everyone to everyone. And equally importantly, talk about sex openly and honestly privately in our intimate relationships. And so I decided to take every dynamic in social media and apply them to this one area that no other social network will go in order to socialize sex and to make real world sex and talking about it socially acceptable and ultimately just as socially shareable as anything else we share on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram. So four and a half years ago now, my team and I launched in public beta makelovenotporn.tv, which is an entirely user-generated, crowdsourced video sharing platform 
that celebrates real-world sex. So anyone from anywhere in the world um, can submit to us videos of themselves having real-world sex. And we are very clear what we mean by this. We're not porn. We're not amateur. We're building a whole new category on the internet that has never previously existed, social sex. So our competition isn't porn, it's Facebook and YouTube, or rather it would be if Facebook and YouTube allowed sexual self-expression and self-identification, which they don't. So social sex videos on Make Love Not Porn are not about performing for the camera. They're just about doing what you do on every other social platform, capturing what goes on in the real world as it happens spontaneously in all its funny, messy, glorious, silly, beautiful, ridiculous, awkward, embarrassing humanness. We curate to make sure of that, watch every single video, we don't publish unless it's real. And we have a revenue sharing business model. So part of the sharing economy, like Uber and Airbnb, you pay to rent and stream social sex videos, and then half that income goes to our contributors, or as we call them, our Make Love Not Porn stars. Because we would like our Make Love Not Porn stars one day to be as famous as YouTube stars, for the same reasons, authenticity, realness, individuality, and to make just as much money. We want to hit the kind of critical mass where one day your social sex video hits a million rentals at $5 per rental, and we give you half that income. We are the answer to the economy, by the way. But um, as I say, the important thing in all of this is that it's designed simply to make it easier to be open, communicative, and healthy about sex in a way that we currently aren't. We call ourselves and make love with porn the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the social. The, the thing that I've found fascinating watching this journey uh, by following you on, on Twitter and, and keeping aware of it is that you share so openly the startup stress and the challenges that you have had attracting funding and getting payments partners to uh, be involved in the site. And it seems so fascinating because I would have thought that with your platform and um, connections and also the fact that sex sells and that Pornography has traditionally been a driver of innovation on the internet uh, and in internet payment technologies. Uh, that, that, that this idea with the cultural and the business edges to it would be kind of an idea for this time and probably maybe wouldn't be as difficult as you found it. The interesting thing, Simon, is, you know, I literally um, um, am building a startup in what is the absolute final frontier of tech. Silicon Valley welcomes innovation and disruption in every other area of our lives except this one, the one that needs it most. Um, as far as the business world is concerned, you know, every piece of business infrastructure, any other tech startup can just take for granted. I can't because the small print always says no adult content. So I realized, um, especially when you know, um, I found it so difficult to raise funding, that I was going to have to pave my own way. I have to break down the business barriers in my own path if I want to scale Make Love Not Porn to be the billion-dollar venture I know it can be. And so I began doing what I tell other entrepreneurs to do, which is when you have a truly world-changing startup, you have to change the world to fit it, not the other way around. So I like to say that I'm in the Steve Jobs business of reality distortion, because if reality won't let me build Make Love Not Porn the way I want to, I'm going to change reality. What I mean by that is, um, three years ago when I began looking for funding, I deliberately began defining, pioneering, and championing my own category, sex tech. 
So I literally wrote the definition of sex tech. If you Google what is sex tech, I'm result one on page one. And sex tech, by the way, is any form of technology or tech venture designed to innovate, disrupt, and enhance in any area of human sexuality and human sexual experience. I coined the hashtag sex tech. I didn't invent the term, but I'm responsible for spreading the hashtag widely. And I began speaking at tech conferences all around the world on why the next big thing in tech is disrupting sex. Because I thought at base level, if I just say that loudly enough, often enough, in enough places, people start to move it. And that led to two more accidental discoveries. The first was that I began realizing for myself the enormous potential of the sector. And secondly, um, as I gained a reputation as a global champion of sex tech, sex tech founders began writing to me literally every day because they all face the same problems I do, can't get funded, um, can't put payments in place. You know, I hear from sex tech founders all around the world. And I realized that I have unique access to extraordinary sex tech deal flow. And so I realized that if I wanted to get my own startup funded, I was going to have to get the entire category funded. So I'm now doing two things simultaneously. I'm still wanting to raise just $2 million to scale Make Love Not Porn, uh, my own startup is my priority. But I'm now also raising $200 million to start the world's first and only sex tech fund. Because if nobody is going to, then I will. Um, the name of my fund um, derives from a quote by Chairman Mao, um, who famously said many years ago, in the interest of gender equality, women hold up half the sky. I think that's relatively unambitious. My sex tech fund is called All the Sky Holdings. And the derivation is deliberate because I plan when I can raise this money to invest in two areas. The first is radically innovative sex tech ventures with a focus on those founded by women. The most interesting things in sex tech today are coming from female founders. We are finally owning our sexuality, finding unique ways to leverage it in business because we get the enormous market that is women's needs, wants, and desires historically deemed too embarrassing, shameful or taboo to aggress in business. And by the way, tap that huge primary market, you tap a huge secondary market of very happy men. And then the second area that I plan to invest in is every business obstacle I encounter is a huge disruptive opportunity in itself. I want to fund the infrastructure of sex tech, the sex tech full stack. The first payment processor that welcomes legal, ethical, transparent sex tech ventures like mine cleans up. The first hosting provider, the first bank, the first e-commerce platform, the first encryptor, encoder, everything that I struggle to you know, be able to use in my startup now. And so I want to invest in the ecosystem of sex tech to do three things. A, to create a self-sustaining portfolio for all the sky. B to be an absolutely massive revenue generator because every sex tech venture around the world needs all of these services. And C to build the ecosystem to turn sex tech into the next trillion dollar category in tech. To, to literally build the, the world if you want to change the world. Absolutely. And as a, as a final final thought here, do you have, um, you know, you, you have coined a number of uh, quotes yourself and, and uh, the hashtags like change the ratio and the like, that if people uh, do, do look at your social media uh, footprint, they will see. What words do you come back to when you're in these hard times? And what kind of um, sources do you have for your motivation to keep going as you keep battling on these battles? Well, first of all, you know, 
<clears throat> Honestly, everybody around me motivates me. And by the way, including, because I just want to give a big shout out to Rachel Sklar, who is the amazing founder of the Change the Ratio movement. That is not my hashtag, that's Rachel's, although I love it and use it all the time. Um, and um, and um, you should totally, I mean, everyone listening should follow Rachel Sklar, S-K-L-R, on Twitter, because she's a phenomenal um, gender equality and diversity champion. And she's just one of many people all around me whom I find constantly inspiring. Um, I just, I'm, I'm just, um, you know, inspired and invigorated by anybody who is determined to change the world to make it the one that we all want to live in. That's magic. Well, thank you so much, Cindy Gallup of Make Love Not Born for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing how things go with building that infrastructure around the world of sex tech. Thank you for your time. Um, and um, can I just say, Simon, anybody listening to this, um, if anybody um, is a potential investor, hit me up, Cindy at MakeLoveNotPorn.com, because I'd love to chat to you more about Make Love Not Porn and sex tech. And it's been great talking to you, and um, thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.